Life looks like one thing, but really what it is is just individual moments. And really what it comes down to is just one moment and a choice that we can make to be in that moment or not. And when that happens, it changes everything and it changes nothing at the same time. It changes nothing because the circumstances are still what they are. But it changes everything in terms of our attitude, in terms of the experience that we have of that moment. Just like that moment last Sunday when I was completely immersed in the midst of all of the stress and all the angst and all the details that just went away in favor of the next word on the page. Can we start to see life like that? Not looking at it from beginning to end with all the memories of the past and all of the angst and worries about the future and all of that stuff, but just let it come right down to this moment right now. Are we in or are we out? Are we connected or are we distracted? And when we realize we're distracted, can we come back? You know, that's it. That's the first piece. The second piece is, when we read in Luke 2 last Sunday, that Mary pondered all these things in her heart. She treasured them and pondered them in their heart. And I stopped there and did a little sidebar because, first of all, what are these things that she was pondering? Think about Mary's run-up to Christmas. You think I had a bad run-up. She gets a visitation. Remember, she's only 13 or 14 years old, maybe. Just a girl. She's been an arranged marriage, has been set without any of her consent to Joseph. Maybe she knows him. Maybe she doesn't really know him that well. But then she has a vision of an angel who tells her that she's going to have a baby. That baby out of wedlock, even though she's betrothed, there is no contact for a year to two years in that culture until the marriage is consummated. So she's going to have a baby now? That time between betrothal and marriage was designed so that you would know that your bride was not with child from any other person. Without DNA testing, without anything that we can do in modern, that was the period that they needed. Now she's pregnant. Could you imagine the stress that would put on her? What was going to happen legally? What was going to happen socially? What was her fiancé going to do? He had every right to throw her out. The community had the right to stone her. What is she supposed to do with all of that? But Joseph draws her in. Joseph protects her. Joseph brings the marriage together. Treats the pregnancy as his own. And then when the birth comes, then there are shepherds and there are there is travel to a, a strange city. There is no room in the living space so that they are living with the animals when she is giving birth. And the magi come and there are stars and there are visions of angels. All of these things. There is a great scene in one of the Batman movies, one of the early ones, where the, the woman... The reporter is in the Batmobile and he is tearing around corners and doing all this stuff and she's just freaking out, right? She's looking out the window and everything and, and finally she gets to a point where she just kind of shuts down and closes her eyes and accepts the ride. I loved that moment in that scene because it's like all the stuff that was too fast to process, all the stuff that she had no control over, all the stuff that was scaring her to her bones, finally she just shut out and accepted the fact that she's on this ride until it ends one way or another. I can almost imagine Mary doing the same thing. With that year of input, 
all these things that she couldn't process, I'm sure, didn't fully understand. She's part of something that seems so huge, and yet she's also just along for the ride. At some point, she just pulls it all in, Luke tells us, treasures these things, but ponders them in her heart. And it wasn't just for the night. I'm sure she was pondering these things for the rest of her life. Mulling them over, bringing them up, replaying them, putting them together side by side with what she was seeing as Jesus grew into manhood, as he started his ministry, as he was hanging on the cross. She's still pondering these things in her heart, putting the pieces together. Because some things in life are just too big to get all at once. You can't do it. It comes in layers It doesn't come directly. There is no way that we can process all these things. I love the analogy of a mule falling into a well. And you want to get the mule out. How are you going to do it? You know? Well, you can try to send down ropes and send down people and try to pull them up. Yeah. But the other thing you can do is just throw a shovel full of dirt on the mule down there. And as he shakes it off, you throw another one and another one and another one. And then after a while, he has to step up on the pile of dirt that you made. And then he steps up again. There are two ways to get yourself out of the well that you find yourself in. You can pray to God to give you a lifeline to pull you out directly. Or you can accept the fact that life is going to throw another shovel full of dirt on your head. And if you shake it off and step up, eventually, instead of a direct pulling out, you have this indirect layering up, layer by layer, insulting shovelful after shovelful of dirt on your head. But if you shake it off and step up, shake it off and step up, you end up in the same place. Life presents like that. Life doesn't give us direct answers. Jesus doesn't give us direct answers. Any teacher worth his or her salt doesn't give direct answers to direct questions, I guess unless it's a math class. But if it's in terms of spirituality, there is no direct answer to be had. We either live this thing in layers. We either ponder these things and treasure them in our hearts over our lifetime. Or we don't get the truth at all. This is the way truth is appropriated. This is the way truth is experienced and brought into a place where we can actually use it. And this is that second thing that we need to understand about our spiritual journey if we're really going to take it. Mary is showing us exactly how this goes. There's only so much that we can absorb at any one time. It's like rainwater on soil. You get too much at once, the rest just runs off. It's like vitamins. You take too much at once, they just run right out of you. We have to get them in the right doses at the right time. We need to be aware of how life is feeding us the next spoonful, putting the next shovelful on our heads. It's an indirect process, absorbing detail by detail, but not looking at everything as a whole. And this is exactly how my life went. Exactly my experience of trying to understand truth and trying to to appropriate another way of living life. And I had the sense that I was always taking two steps forward and one step back. I would learn something or I would unlearn something. And I think that I really had it this time. I really got this thing now, you know, And then I'd find myself a day or two later right back into old thought patterns, right back into old behavior patterns, right back doing the same old thing again. And it's like, well, what's up with that? 
Why can't I stay consistent? Why can't I keep moving forward? Paul says the same thing, doesn't he? What a wretched man I am. All these things that I hate, those are the things I do and the things that I, I want to do, I don't. And, you know, he, he talks about this same phenomenon. For anyone trying to move in new directions, anyone trying to fundamentally change their worldview, fundamentally change their habitual view of life, it's two steps forward and one step back. It's this indirect layering up. And we need to get clear about the process because otherwise we're going to beat ourselves up constantly. We're going to think that these times that seem like doubt, because they are doubt, they feel like a lack of faith. They feel like we are backsliding. They feel like we've lost the meaning, lost the whole presence. But really all they are is this natural oscillation, this natural give and take. Two steps forward and a step back. And then two steps forward again and a step back. This is how we learn truth. We need to at least give that a space on your mental shelf for a while. Let it sit there and see if it's not true. See how much time you spend, how much energy you spend beating yourself up for things that you're not doing or things that you're not doing completely well. And then come back to this moment and see if this moment can be a choice for you to just let it be enough. And the next moment, and the next moment. And see how that layers up to something completely different as you move forward. And so the question is, can we trust that this is true? Is there evidence for this process that I'm talking about in Scripture? Because that's our go-to. We want to be able to find and identify and, and see these processes, these principles working in Scripture. And fortunately, we have just the guy for you today. It's Peter. You've got to love Peter. Do you remember when you were a kid, if you're old as I am, if you were a kid, do you remember the visible man? Remember that those little plastic models that you could get, those visible men? And, and then you had the visible woman, too, not to be sexist about it. But it was a model of a person, but the skin was transparent plastic. And then you could see underneath the bones, and you could see the organs, and you could see the muscle tissue and all that. And you could take pieces out and pull the organs out and see the structure. So it was like for anatomy and whatnot. But it was a visible man. See everything all the way through. Peter is the visible man. He is so transparent. His personality is so strong and so unique that it has been preserved through countless copying and translations for 2,000 years, and it still presents in the Gospels and in the Book of Acts and in his epistles as if it were yesterday. It's amazing that his personality has survived all that. And if you know anything about Peter, if you remember anything about Peter, you know that the word for Peter is impetuous. He acts before he thinks, which is exactly what impetuous means, you know? He is the one who just jumps out, says things, you know, it, it's just like his heart is on his sleeve. He is just immediate. He's there. He's like, he's like a small child. It's just, boom, it's all right there. It's WYSIWYG. Remember WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get? That's Peter, you know? No wondering where Peter's coming from or what he's thinking because it's, boom, thoughts jump right down on his tongue and out his mouth, and there you go. So we're going to look at Peter, because Peter is going to tell us something about this process. And I'm so grateful that Scripture is written the way it's written so that these things are there. Impetuous Peter. Take a look at um, 
Matthew four eighteen uh, to verse 20. And I wasn't able to get, there's, there's a lot of them here, and I wasn't able to get them all in your handout. But I've got bits and pieces on the handout so you can follow some of it along. But I hope that you'll go back and re-read some of these citations. I don't know if Frank's going to be able to get them up on the, uh, on the screen or not. But take a look right at the beginning, the first meeting between Jesus and Peter at Matthew 4, starting in verse 18. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Very short account. Luke gives us more details. He tells us about Jesus who was being pressed by crowds right up to the shore of the lake so that he randomly just chose a boat that was on the shore because the fishermen were cleaning their nets and got in the boat, pushed out just a few feet, and was able then to preach to the, to the multitudes with a little space for, for water. And then when he's done, he tells Peter, you know, push out into the deep water now and throw out your nets. And Peter complains and says, we've been fishing all night, we've got nothing, you know. But he does it. And they pull in this huge catch of fish. And it's at that point that Peter realizes he's dealing with something that he doesn't understand. And he leaves everything and follows. So we get a little more detail in Luke. But the point is this. At the point that Peter met Jesus, he was prepared in some way to see in Jesus what others missed. He was prepared to drop everything, his way of life, his sustenance, and follow This man who represented truth to him, something that he couldn't quite grasp, but he was ready to move. That's a huge step forward. How many of us are prepared in that way to be able to see truth when it presents and follow it? Drop everything that we think we know and understand and follow that truth. Immediately after that, um, we see just these snapshots of Peter all through his life with Jesus and beyond. And so later on, after John has been executed, he's been beheaded, he was in prison, and Jesus, of course, is grieving his cousin's death. He wants to get away. He wants to move. And so he starts, as he always does, go into the wilderness to pray, go into the wilderness to get the silence and the solitude that he needs to recharge and reconnect and process the grief that he's feeling. But all these people follow him. And then they're in the wilderness with him and they're hungry and there's no food and there's nothing. And so this is where he feeds the 5,000. And after he does, he circles back to the lake and immediately here at Matthew 14, verse 22, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And after he sent the crowds away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. So finally, Jesus gets his alone time. But he has to send the crowds away, and he sends the the disciples, his closest friends, on the boat to get to the other side of the lake alone. But at verse 24, the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, that would be between three and six in the morning, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. And so here's Peter, impetuous Peter. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. (laughs) 
And Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water, came toward Jesus. That's a pretty big step forward, I would think. Wow. Just get out. I want to do it too. You could just see Peter like this little kid. I want to do that. Let me come to you. Two steps forward and then a step back. But seeing the wind, now Peter starts thinking. See, he was acting before he was thinking, but now he starts thinking about it. But seeing the wind became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? You know, sometimes we can be in love with the idea of something, the abstract idea of something. You know, whether it's a job, whether it's a person, whether it's a cause, whether it's our faith itself. But the reality is very different, isn't it? Peter's in love with the idea of jumping out of the boat and walking on the water with Jesus, but when he gets out there, it's a little bit different. And it pulls him back into old patterns of fear and doubt, feeling inadequate to the task. As we go through Peter's experience, double-think this. Put it against your own life. See how you have been taking two steps forward and one step back, just as Peter does, because If we can't connect with Scripture on this personal level, then why are we even reading it? If it stays out and stays abstract, stays at arm's length, it's of no value to us. This is so important for us to see Peter going through all of this. Now fast forward again. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say I am? Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, of course, just like that, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Wow. Look at that. Peter's boldness, Peter's insight, Peter's willingness to just say what everybody else was probably thinking, but he says it out loud. And Jesus has this response. But now look at the very next verse, starting in verse 20. Then Jesus warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, this is Jesus, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. In the space of two verses, he's getting the keys of the kingdom, and now he's Hasatan. What the heck? (laughs) To jump out, to feel that confidence, to feel that boldness, to get out way ahead of yourself, for Peter to get way out ahead of Jesus, to start misinterpreting what Jesus was saying is to move back into that adversarial position. And that's to a Jew what Hasatan means, the Satan, the adversary, 
The one who is like the prosecuting attorney who brings the evidence against, who makes our difficult choices real by presenting the other side. This was now Peter to Jesus. He was the one who was producing all the tension. He was the one who was a stumbling block. In just the space of a few breaths, two steps forward, one step back. Fast forward to the Last Supper at John 13, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter, and Simon said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. There is Peter again, doing his Peter thing. You know, we don't get the cultural significance of Jesus doing what he's doing. For him, first of all, to strip down and show his skin was was something that, that patriarchs did not do, men did not do. For him to take on the job of washing feet, which even Jewish slaves could not be commanded to do, only Gentile slaves could be commanded to do this lowly task. For that inversion of the master and disciple relationship was just too much for Peter. He couldn't take it culturally. It outraged him. It offended every bit of his being. And he refuses. And then Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no part in me. And what does Peter do? (laughs) Peter said to him, Lord, then not wash only my feet, but also my hands and my head too. Two steps back, a step forward, back and forth, back and forth. Peter misinterpreting what Jesus is trying to do. But his response time is pretty good. You know, he recovers quickly. Still in the Last Supper, now at John 13, Simon Peter says to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus has been saying for, for paragraphs now, talking about where he needs to go, how he's going to be with his father, and so on and so forth. Where are you going? And Jesus answers, where I go, you cannot follow me now but you will follow me later. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Here's Peter, full of resolution, full of certainty. He knows what he's about. He knows that he can do this thing with Jesus. But then at the Garden of Eden, Matthew 26, Jesus came with them to the place called, I'm sorry, Garden of Eden, Garden of Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. You remain here and keep watch with me, he says to the three. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he came back to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And of course, this happens two more times where they keep falling asleep. You know, Peter is trying to operate beyond his capacity. 
He thinks he's all that. He thinks he knows what he will do, that he would follow Jesus anywhere, that he would lay down his life for him, but he can't even stay awake. He can't even stay present to what Jesus is going through. And then the final collapse comes at Luke 22. Having arrested Jesus, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Jesus was following at a distance. I'm sorry, but Peter was following at a distance. So he doesn't stay with the crowd. He's keeping a healthy, safe distance, but he's following along. And after they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him. Aren't those details great? I mean, you can just picture that. It's in a movie, and it's been portrayed many times. But looking at him across the fire, seeing his face in that flickering light, looking intently at him, and she says, this man was with him too. But Peter denied it, saying, woman, I don't know him. A little later, another saw him and said, you are one of them too. But Peter said, man, I am not. And about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he's a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And the Lord looked, turned and looked at Peter. Oh, could you imagine that? Across the courtyard, in his binds, for him to turn and look at Peter at that moment. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before, a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Here is a complete collapse. Everything that he thought he was about, everything he thought he could do, is chipped away and chipped away. And then this collapse. He didn't even realize what he was doing while he was doing it. Until that moment between the rooster crowing and Jesus looking at him, everything coalesces again for him. And he realizes where he's gone. But now moving to the book of Acts. The the day of Pentecost at Acts 2. Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And he goes on to give this magnificent address. Third hour of the day would be about 9 a.m. in the morning. This is after the Spirit has rushed through the upper room. And everyone's speaking in different tongues. And the only thing that the people can say is they got to be drunk. Hey, say it's 9 o'clock in the morning. Nobody's drinking, all right? He stands in front of thousands of people at this point and gives this magnificent address. It is well-written. It's erudite. It, 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 is, it is, is deep in terms of theological insight. And he's a poor Galilean. Talk about a step forward, Right? And then it acts 4, 8. After they had spent a night in jail because the Jewish authorities were so worried and angry that they had healed a lame man in the temple courtyard. And they're worried that this whole cycle is starting over again. Throw him in jail, take him out the next morning and start questioning them. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says to them, rulers and elders of the people, If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. 
He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, as the people observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. There is this confidence now, this boldness, this ability to communicate in ways that was far beyond their training, far beyond their roots, far beyond what seems to be their capacity. There's something going on here. These are huge steps forward. But is Peter done with the backward? No, not at all. Take a look back at Acts verse uh, chapter 10 this time. On the next day, as they were on their way approaching the city, and this was Caesarea, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance, and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by the four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. All of those are going to be unclean to the Jewish dietary code. All right, just so you know. They're describing unclean animals. And a voice comes to him and says, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And again a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken back up into the sky. And we don't necessarily know the significance of this right away. But it becomes apparent as you read the next passages in Acts. But all of this was a metaphor. Here is Peter becoming outraged again. Here is Peter shooting from the hip again. Peter being outraged at breaking the dietary code, the dietary purity codes of his religion. And yet, he is now working with Gentile followers as well as Jewish followers of Jesus. And the full impact of what this passage means, the full impact of what Peter was doing, is actually laid out by Paul. Paul kind of outs him. Paul is the, uh, the tattletale here at Galatians in the second chapter. Listen to what Paul says about Peter when he comes to Antioch. But when Peter came to Antioch, I, Paul, had to oppose him to his face. And here's another guy who's not shy, right? Paul will get right into your face. I had to oppose Peter to his face for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterwards, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. This is the same Peter who just delivered those magnificent addresses. This is the same Peter who healed the blind man. Remember, asking for alms, silver and gold have I none, but this I do have for you. Pick up your pallet and walk. Now he's hiding from those who favor the circumcision. And he's changing his behavior depending on which way the winds are blowing. And Paul calls him right out on it. It's amazing. Three, four, five, ten steps forward, and then the step back again. 
if you start to parse this back into our lives, you think about it. We come up with a statement of faith. We become convinced of something. And it seems to work for our lives. It gives us a sense of connection with God. It gives us a sense of peace. It gives us a sense of confidence that we can move forward within the circumstances that we're experiencing right now. But the experience, the circumstances never stay static. They change. And when they change, suddenly what we thought we believed, what we were practicing, no longer sustains us in these new circumstances, these more extreme circumstances. The analogy for me is back in the 19th century, there was Isaac Newton. Y'all know Newton, right? He came up with the laws of mechanics and how things moved and turned. And they were ironclad for velocities that they could measure with in the 19th century. But as time moved forward and we were able to experiment with higher and higher velocities and we started to understand something about the speed of light, suddenly Newtonian mechanics didn't work anymore. So enter Einstein with the theory of relativity. Now he can describe how things move and how they operate at velocities close to the speed of light. But then you move into the 20th century and what happens? We start being able to delve down into subatomic particles and suddenly Einstein's theories don't describe what's happening down there with photons and neutrons and quarks and muons and all those crazy things. So enter quantum mechanics. But then when you move off into dynamic systems like the weather and and politics and, and population expanses, these vast systems that are so sensitive to initial conditions suddenly we're not able to describe those anymore. Enter chaos theory. We've had a moving wave front of physical theories that had to deal with the changing velocities, the changing uh, details that we could observe through our instrumentation. And this is the same thing that's happening in our life. We think we understand something, and it works in this particular situation. But as we move at a higher velocity, it doesn't work anymore. And suddenly we lose that connection with God, we think. We feel disconnected. We feel unsure again. We feel the doubt again. We feel inadequate to the task at hand. And we think we've failed. But all we've done is moved into another vantage point. There is another way that we need to see our faith. Two steps forward, a step back, and then steps forward again. What Peter is a genius at is always getting back up after he falls. Like David. David was God's beloved, did horrendous things, but never questioned that he was still God's beloved and got back on the horse, got back into the game. Peter does the same thing. The saints are just sinners who got up Right? That's it. To get back up again. Never to question that God has another chance for you. And every time you get back up and you enter back into the new set of circumstances, at the new velocity you're traveling, you can find a new way of understanding God and his relationship with you that describes that set of circumstances. And then the next one, and the next one, and the next one. This is how it works. This is what Peter is showing us. He's the visible man showing us these things. And you think even now, is he done? (laughs) You know, the Bible is done. doesn't talk about Peter anymore. But there are extra canonical books 
the Acts of Peter, the apocryphal Acts of Peter that was probably written in the mid-2nd century or late-2nd century, talks about Peter and Paul coming to Rome at the end of their lives. This would be during the reign of Nero in the mid-60s in the first century. And Nero was a crazy person, if you've read anything about Nero. He's the one who set the fire on Rome, you know, and then blamed the Christians for it. Uh, All these things are crazy. In his persecution, after the great fire of Rome, and he brought all the Christians to the Circus Maximus and, and was torturing them and killing them in various ways as sport for the people, Peter makes an exit out of the city. Now, it's not just because he's, he's a coward necessarily. There was you know, the speculation that he was important to the movement, to the early Christian movement, and he needed not to die at that moment. He needed to move on to another area and continue the work that he was doing. But as he's heading out of town on the Via Appia, the Appian Way, he meets Jesus coming in the opposite direction. And he says the famous words in Latin, Quo vadis Domini? which literally means, where are you going, Lord? And Jesus turns and looks at him and says, I'm going to Rome to be crucified again. And Peter realizes what he's doing. He realizes that once again, he has abdicated. Once again, he has turned away from the path. And he turns around and he goes back to Rome presents himself, and he won't allow himself to be crucified standing up, the tradition says, but was crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified the way his Lord was. But he accepts his martyrdom. Peter is the visible man. He's the one with the transparent skin who is showing us to be able to see the inner workings of how this goes. I hope you can see this, that you can see yourself in Peter See what it is that he's doing. We can look at Peter and say, we think that he would know better, especially at the end of his life. But he's showing us the way Jesus' way works in our lives. That it's this indirect layering up, not a straight line to where we want to go. And that frustrates us. We can't control it if it's not a straight line. We have to just live through all those shovelfuls of dirt coming down. These series of moments where we can make choices to move into that set of circumstances and see what the relationship looks like from there at that velocity, at that temperature. What does this relationship look like so that I can redefine it for myself and I can take that into the next series of circumstances? To keep going, to keep breathing, to keep getting back on track after every fall with the conviction that we are still loved, that we are still accepted, no matter how many times we waver, no matter how many times we fall. We need to start seeing the value of our doubts. We need to start seeing the value of the times that we waver and fall because those are the indications that we're still moving. We're still pressing the envelope. We're still moving into that next space at that next highest velocity. To stay static is the kiss of death. And the way the spirit is never static, always in motion. To remain vulnerable to remain humble, and yet to remain really resilient in everything that we do. Willing to risk and continue to risk moving into that next open space. That's what the way is like. We need to be encouraged. We need to encourage ourselves. We need to give ourselves a break when we think we're blowing it and realizing, no, 
We're just moving into the next space where we need the next connection with our God to see how it works there, what it looks like from that vantage point. And then to rest and immerse in these details that this moment has to offer so that we can find the completion right now that is always available to us, even in the midst of the larger incompletion of our lives. This is Peter's genius. This is what has been preserved for us in our sacred scriptures. We need to pay attention and see how it applies to our lives so that we can take advantage of knowing how the process works and move with it. And always know that our Lord, our Savior, our God is with us every single step of the way without fail. And I think taking this into a new year especially a year that for many of us has perceived as has been perceived as as loss whatever is coming we will be adequate to we will be able to breathe through if we can take this with us those two things you know that life is not one thing it's this moment and our choice to move into this moment and that we're not going to get the answer all at once it's going to be layered up bring those into 2019 See how they work for you to keep you moving through all those breathless moments. Let's pray. Father, it's good to be here this morning. Thank you. Thank you for everyone who's here. Thank you for the people who are not here and yet are in relationship with us. We do ask that this artificial line that we draw between years can be a foundation, a launching pad for us to be able to move into this year with new confidence, new encouragement, new hope that we are going to be with you. And regardless of outcome, regardless of unmet expectation, it's going to be a beautiful thing. It's going to be a beautiful time with you and with each other. So thank you, Father, for loving us. Thank you for bringing this new year. Never let us forget, we can only do any of this because you did it first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.